It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is Dimitri Matheny. He's a jazz flugelhornist and composer who has been described as one of the most emotionally expressive improvisers of his generation and also one of the jazz world's most talented horn players. And on that note, Dimitri, good afternoon and thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Good afternoon, Alan. It's, it's good to see you after all these years. It's been a little while. I know. It's just amazing. And there's been so many things that have transpired from then, which was in the uh, mid to late 90s until this present day. We've been through pandemic. We've been through upheaval. Uh, we've been through just so many things. And I think the beauty of it all is truly the fact that no matter what life throws us, as long as we've got music, everything will be good. Oh, I agree, 100%. I was thinking about, you know, how fortunate I am to not live in Ukraine right now and not have bombs raining down out of the sky and that sort of thing. And I remembered uh, when I was in high school, a history teacher pointed out to us that what we know about history is we know about arts and culture, we know about music and art and that sort of thing, and we know about uh, conquerors and wars and kings and generals and that's what kind of survives down through the ages and then she looked at us all very pointedly this was at Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan she looked at us across her desk and she said and you should decide right now whether you're going to be a creator or a destroyer wow. <laughs> so tell me uh, Dimitri what is it that got you involved in jazz since we're here based on a mutual respect and friendship and collaboration from the world of jazz. What got you involved in jazz? Well, for, tell you what, I'll tell you first about the nurture and then about the nature, all right? So my I was raised by my father. Uh, I was kind of a single dad raising an only child. I uh, didn't know my mother. She left when I was a baby. And my dad not a musician himself, but had a nice record collection, including Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, which he played to death, you know, played it all the time in our house. And and I remember telling him, you know, what, what I wanted to be when I, he asked what I wanted to be when I grow up. And, and I, I was like, Daddy, what's that sound? And he said, well, that's Miles Davis. And I said, well, I want to be a Miles Davis when I grow up. <laughs> so, you know, I, I credit my father, of course, and his, his record collection and, and his uh, enthusiasm for jazz. But when I turned 50, I met my mother, and I, I, I hadn't known her at all. I hadn't known anything about her because, you know, they, they had a very contentious divorce. And whenever I asked about her as a child, my dad didn't have much to say about her. And uh, she actually came out to a concert that I was giving, flew out from Michigan uh, to the West Coast and came to my show. And after the show, I met my mother. And I was 50 years old. And she said, you know, it's funny. You and I have a lot of the same repertoire. I said, wait, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a jazz singer. I said, I, I had no idea. She goes, yeah, that's, that's how I met your father. He used to come to all my gigs. So I go to my father, Alan, and I said, Dad, you never told me that my mother was a jazz singer. Oh, she was what we called a torch singer. All she did was sing in little clubs. I'm like, Dad, what is it that you think I do for a living? 
So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm finding out that, that my origin story is not what I've always believed. When you were younger and you began this journey into music, yeah, where, where did the horn instruments come in? You didn't start as a flugelhornist. No, sir. No. No, I, I wanted to play trumpet, and uh, my father talked to the music teachers, and they said, well, he should sing in the chorus, and he should play piano, he should take piano lessons. And so it was, it was probably, I started out with music lessons when I was four or five years old, but it wasn't until I was nine that I got a trumpet. And man, I used to do these horrible things to this instrument to try to get a good sound. Like I, the sound that I loved, that I would hear on these recordings, like Miles Davis and Chet Baker, these people that had this big, warm, rich sound. And then I, I would play the trumpet. And it would be really brassy and edgy. And so, uh, you know, I heard somebody say that the horns without lacquer sound darker. So I took steel wool and took all the lacquer off of my trumpet. My dad was furious. And I used to stick uh, athletic socks up in the bell because I, I didn't know how they were getting this warm, fuzzy sound that I was hearing on these recordings. And one day somebody said to me, uh, man, you, you should play flugelhorn. And I thought it was a made-up word. I mean, I'd never heard the word before. It sounded silly to me. And they laid some Art Farmer records on me, and I was just knocked out, and that was it. And so probably, I want to say, when I was 15 or 16, I doubled on flugelhorn. And then in, in college, when I started studying with Art Farmer, he encouraged me to just put away the trumpet and focus exclusively on the flugel, which, which is what he was doing at the time. And um, I never looked back. I just, I really do love it. For, for a while, I had both instruments, you know. You know, whenever it was my gig with my band, the trumpet would just gather dust. I would, I would play the flugelhorn all night. I know you were inspired by Art Farmer, but were you also a protege of him, I believe? Oh, yeah. He, he, he was so good to me, Alan. He... The last 10 years of his life coincided with my first 10 years out of school when I'd graduated from college. You know, I was working all the time, but I, I was barely making enough money to cover my rent, and I just couldn't figure out how people were making a living doing this. And the other reason was, I, you know, the way that my friends and I, that we were all playing, we all had this approach to, to, to improvisation that we all learned in school. But when I would listen to these classic recordings of, of, of people like Art Farmer, there was this, this sincerity, authenticity, and soul, and lyricism that I just wasn't hearing in my own playing. And I was very frustrated by it. So when I got to meet Art Farmer uh, and, and, and started taking lessons with him, it, it, it really it changed my life. He, he was living in Vienna, Austria, but he kept an apartment in New York City. And, and we would meet at Carmine Caruso's studio and, and sit next to each other on the piano bench. And I learned about as much from him about life as, as about music. He was just an incredibly generous with his, with his time and talent. And yeah, I, I, I definitely would consider him a mentor and friend. I thought I had a pretty unique relationship with him. But when I went to his memorial service, I met a dozen other young musicians who had similar relationships. The people that that had had, you know, Brian Lynch was very close to to Art Farmer and Ingrid Jensen. Ingrid actually, I, I believe, lived in Vienna for a while and studied with Art over there. And he used to Art used to hold Ingrid Jensen up to me as an example of. He would say, "Man, you don't take enough chances. Listen to Ingrid. 
she's out there on the high wire. You got to play more like that. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was an early champion of Ingrid. I don't know if you know her work at all. I do. And yeah. uh, you are absolutely correct in, in that assessment. Uh, she is amazing. Yeah. So do you actually play Art Farmer's former horn or, yeah, or he, you inherited he his horn? How, how did you come across that? Uh, he had several instruments. Um, he had a, an old binge and a French besson. He had a, a, a can stool. The horn that I have has a can stool bell and French besson lead pipe and English besson valves. So he, it's this Frankenstein's monster of a horn that was kind of soldered together for him in the '60s by by Zig Canstool down in L.A. And it, it was, of all his horns, it was the one I liked the most. And I, the first time I played it was at his memorial service. I actually asked him about it when he was alive, and he, he wouldn't sell me any of his instruments. So I actually bought it after he'd passed. Um, so, you know, whenever I see an article that says I inherited his horn, I always want to correct people. It, it wasn't like that at all. I, I basically went after it because I loved it so much. And I always feel badly when... When these legendary musicians die and, you know, their instruments end up in a museum or, or a gallery or something or, or you know, gathering dust, you know, somewhere. And I, I really feel like these horns deserve to be played. This one in particular, it gets such a lovely sound, but it, 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 it really plays badly out of tune. You have, to, you have to lip a bunch of notes into tune. You know, there's one note will be naturally sharp and another note will be naturally flat. And I guess all flugelhorns are a little bit this way, but... But, but Art's horn is, is especially because of the, the different parts that weren't really made to go together that were put together in this thing. Is it still your instrument of choice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. And yeah. as you said, it was uh, kind of a, a beast of, a, uh, yeah. of an instrument. It, what, it weighs like two and a half pounds? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a heavy horn. Yeah. Don't you get <laughs> tired playing that? Sure, but, you know, it's worth it, baby. <laughs> I love it. So uh, you don't need a workout at the gym. You've got a flugelhorn to lift uh, to your I think, lips. I think my girlfriend would beg to differ that I'd, I could use a good workout. <laughs> I, the only workout I get, Alan, I walk my dog uh, just once a day, Very just a very gentle stroll with my dog. That's about all the exercise I get. That and music, you know. Oh, speaking of your dog, I know you're yeah. very active on Instagram, and uh, <laughs> you, you seem to... Uh, gravitate toward scout i believe yeah. is his name uh, and you do yeah. a lot of postings of of the dog my wife absolutely loves seeing your posts for a number of reasons <laughs> but she loves the dog oh uh, i'm so glad and yeah. uh, it's obviously something very special to you and i don't know did you grow up with dogs alan uh, i did not because yeah. of allergies yeah but everybody in the family except me has dogs yeah. You know, I think I might be allergic to my dog too, but not. It's not so bad. I just, I just have a, you know, um, sometimes sneezing and that sort of thing. But, but, yeah, I grew up. I always wanted a dog. When I was a kid, I always lived in little apartments, and we never had a yard. So I grew up with cat. You know, with a house cat. I always wanted a dog, and I wasn't able to get a, a dog until I was middle aged and had a home with a yard. You know, and and uh, I just adore this dog. She's the love of my life. It's astonishing how, how close you can get, you know, this trans-species love affair, you know, that you can get. So, you know, I, I used to uh, work quite a bit with a pianist and composer named Amina Figueroa, mm-hmm. and she lives in New York now, but she used to live in Holland. 
And, you know, I would go over there for about a month every fall and tour with, with her band around Europe. And they had a dog, uh, a golden retriever named Scatty, that I just loved that dog so much. And when I found out that Scatty had died, this isn't even my dog. This is someone else's dog that I, I had a relationship with. I felt that harder. I mean, I've had close friends and colleagues that have died that didn't hit me as hard as Amina's dog, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And I guess it's like I I like dogs better than most people, and and certain dogs especially. And my dog Scout, you know, one of the things that's so cool about her, she loves to travel. I mean, she she loves she loves nothing more than to jump up in the passenger seat and ride shotgun and I've taken her all over there. She's she went with me to Santa Fe, New Mexico and back a couple of weeks ago. It was fantastic. So she's such a good travel buddy. How how is your dog when it comes to either practicing or performance? Uh, do you do you ever take the dog <laughs> does it run when you start playing or or does it sit there and uh in a, in a very uh, <laughs> It's so funny. It's so funny that you should ask that because Every time I practice, she runs and hides. She'll hide under the bed. She'll leave the room. She hates it. She absolutely hates it. And I had a friend, a guitarist, John Stoll, came over to do a, a rehearsal with me. And, and he's, he, he's a dog lover, too. And, and he greeted Scout at the gate. And I said, now, John, don't, don't take it personally. When we start to play, Scout will go and hide because she doesn't like music. But don't take it personally. She, she's always, she always does that. He pulls out his guitar and he starts to tune up and she comes up to him and lays her head in his lap and just gazes at him while he plays the guitar. And I said, Scout, you bitch. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe it. She, she just doesn't like the horn. She likes the guitar. <laughs> she just doesn't care for the flugelhorn or at least my horn. Maybe so I'd bring another horn player over here and she'll dig that. I don't know, but she's not loving my horn at all. So then, as of today, we can announce yeah. to the world that Dimitri Metheny is going to become a guitarist. <laughs> I might have to if I want to serenade my puppy. So, in your background, uh, you seem to lean very heavily uh, toward the world of education. Would that be a fair assessment? My generation, you know, I, I feel like I represent kind of a, a, a dividing line when I was in school, it was very common to hear jazz talked about as being somehow not legitimate music. You know, like, you know, you you go to school and there'd be a, a music department that teaches the canon and classical technique and so forth. And then they'd have a jazz department. It would be some new fly-by-night program in the basement or something. I, I do remember people saying in school to me, you know, jazz is like the icing on the cake and you really need your meat and potatoes before you should, you know, what are you working on? I'm trying to learn this Clark Terry solo. You should really be working on the Haydn trumpet concerto, you know, the tr Clark Terry and that. I used to hear that stuff a lot. And then, and then when I was in school, Wynton Marsalis came out winning the, the jazz and classical Grammys when he was 18 years old, which was broadcast live on the Grammy Awards. And I remember at the time him going before the, the folks at Lincoln Center and saying, look, I play both and jazz is harder. And, you know, he we don't give him enough credit for for what he did to sort of change the perception of jazz in the academy, you know. 
So what I mean to say is people older than me, most of them who were serious about learning jazz learned it on the bandstand. They learned it from older musicians and sort of mentor-protege relationships. And most people younger than I am learned jazz in school and from competitions like Essentially Ellington and from jazz camps and, you know, things like, like, like the program that we had in, in, in Jazz Aspen, you know, that are educational in nature. And, and really, I definitely feel like I, I have I kind of straddle both worlds because a, a lot of what I learned about this music, I learned at Berkeley and, and at Interlochen and learned in classes, you know, but but I also learned an awful lot just from following Art Farmer around and carrying his case and asking him questions, you know, about about this life, you know, and 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 it was invaluable to me. So. So, yeah, I would say that when it comes to jazz education, my philosophy is really one of, of oral oral histories. I feel like the real the real definitive education that we can get is listening to the elders tell us how it actually went down. You know, the people that were actually there who did it. And a lot of them are still alive. Like Sonny Rollins is is still active on social media and he's become kind of a, you know, a historian and philosopher. You know, I, I really love that. And then that's a great resource, you know, for, for, for aspiring artists. Sorry, I kind of went all over no, the no. place with that answer. No, <laughs> you're well, but the reason why I asked is uh, when you left school, you yeah. didn't leave school. You no. still were involved. I mean, you were with the Boston uh, Center for the Arts. Uh, the oh, yeah. California Jazz Conservatory. Uh, let's yeah. see, what else? The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. Uh, Berkeley, you were the president of the Alumni Association. So it seems yeah, like uh, the educational world is a very important facet in your life. A, a friend of mine who's a, who's, who's a piano player said that the college teaching gig is the new hustle. The old hustle was the major label record deal. And the new hustle is if you can get yourself a college teaching gig. And um, I haven't done that. I, I don't have a full-time teaching job. So I do a lot of workshops Sometimes I'll be an artist in residence at a camp or something or at a college for a couple weeks or something like that. And I really enjoy that. And part of it is, is, is the educational acumen. But another piece of it that I really like is, you know, when you're in residence somewhere, you can actually go and, and spend a couple weeks in a, in a place, you know, and play a concert and do some workshops and give some private lessons and, and visit the high schools and visit the colleges and do all of that stuff. You really get a, a sense you can, when you can immerse yourself in a community. And I really feel like that that this this jazz industry as it is now, there are four or five individuals in each area that are kind of jazz heroes that are holding it together. You know, that somebody might have a radio show and run a little concert series and have the last record store or somebody, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, there, and, and, and it's this patchwork of relationships. And a lot of that now is held together by, by jazz education, by, which has become a huge industry. Much bigger than than the than, than the jazz performing industry. Well, you also uh, mentioned the word philosophy or philosopher, yeah. and yeah. from the time Dimitri that I first met you, which was uh, up at Jazz Aspen with the uh, Thelonious Monk Institute, I always viewed you as kind of the the intellectual and the philosopher. Oh, really. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. That's how you struck me. Besides, oh. obviously, being a, a marvelous musician, uh, I, I, I saw you more as as the intellectual, and I, I I don't know if I'm off the mark on that. 
Well, you know, I, I, I really feel like um, one of my great heroes was my father. He died a couple of years ago, but, but when he was a younger man, he, he was very well-read and very thoughtful and, um, and very broad-minded. You know, like when I would go to him with the big questions about, you know, what happens when we die or, or you know, why, why are the arts important and things like that. You know, he would say, well, here's what I believe and other people think this and that. And here are a few books to read and you go make up your own mind. So, you know, his his entire approach to parenting was just to kind of give me lots of information and encourage me to, to be a critical thinker. But I actually find that's pretty common among musicians. You know, I, I, um, I, I, a lot of the, the musicians that I talk to, the last thing in the world they want to sit around and talk about is music. They want to talk about world events and and philosophy and, and you know, uh, life hacks. You know, what's your approach to this? What's your approach to that? You know, mm-hmm. I've learned an awful lot from my fellow musicians in that regard. I didn't think I was too far off the mark also because I know you're <laughs> very active, for example, on Instagram. <laughs> and not only are you on Instagram a lot talking about your music, talking about your dog Scout, mm-hmm. but you also post a lot of philosophical sayings or quotes mm-hmm. from different mm-hmm. people, everyone from Fred Rogers to Miles Davis uh, <laughs> and other people involved in the arts. Tell us a little bit about what the motivation is behind that. Well, I used to have a little notepad that I used to carry around in my pocket. And if I'm having a conversation with Alan Scott and he says something interesting to me, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. And I would write that down. And 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 I find that if I, if I copy something down in writing, whether it's music or something someone has said or a quotation or something, that it tends to stay in my mind a little bit more if I, if I do that. And then when social media came around, I just thought, well, maybe I'll share some of these things. You know, that something that someone has said that really struck me. You know, for example, Art Farmer, uh, when I asked him how his bands always sounded so good, you know, he he lived in Vienna, but he would come over here and he'd go to he'd go to L.A. and pick up an L.A. rhythm section and play Southern California and tour around. And then he'd go to Northern California and get a different rhythm section and do the same thing. And yet his bands always sounded so polished and so professional. And, and, and I didn't know how he was getting that done because I know that there wasn't a lot of opportunity to rehearse, right? And so I said, what's the secret? And, he, and his response was so clever. He said, Dimitri, if, if you find you're the smartest cat in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And I, you know, I took that to mean you, you surround yourself with, with, ta- with great talents, with people that are really great at what they do, and you just let them do what they do, and you get out of their way. But you, but you don't mind putting yourself, in fact, you, you aspire to put yourself into situations where you're the weakest link, and then you can't lose, you know. And, and I've really taken that to heart, and, and I always try to hire the very best musicians and, and try, try my best to play up to their level. So that's the thing about the quotations is that I, I, I just I, I, I hear things that people tell me and it can be anybody. You mentioned Fred Rogers, man, it can it can be something Winnie the Pooh says. I don't know if it's wise and I want to learn from it, try to commit it to memory and maybe share it on Instagram. I don't know. Well, you you do it. You you do it quite often and and it's really I good. Post one quote a day. <laughs> yes, and, and it yeah. they they are quotes that are inspirational. And, and they have some really good meaning, and uh, I, I think a lot of people take them to heart. So don't, 
don't uh, undersell yourself uh, <laughs> on, on these things because you're having a great impact. And, and before we leave the philosophical corner here for a moment, uh, let me ask you, I know you quote other people, but what's your favorite Dimitri Metheny quote? Oh, my goodness. Gosh, do I even have any? Do, have I ever had an original thought? I don't, I'm not sure I have. <laughs> I really, I'm really not. I, I'll have to get, let me get back to you on that. I'll have to think about that. I, I can quote my father and my grandmother endlessly, you know, uh, but I, I'll have to give some further thought to that. So we're not here to discuss necessarily education and philosophy, uh, but we want to get back to the music and the music is a, 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 an immense part of your life. It's a, a very extensive career that you've had in the music world. It's my understanding you've been involved in one form or another with over 120 different recordings. Mm. But in the context of that, you also have, uh, as a leader, done at least 12 albums that I'm aware of. And you now have a new one out called Cascadia. Yes, sir. Cascadia is is on, by the way, the uh, Origin Records label, and it showcases a lot of classic tunes, but it also brings in six of your own compositions. Yes, Tell sir. us about some of the development of Cascadia. Well, like a lot of musicians, for the first time in my life, I had the uh, wonderful and also challenging and also very strange experience of being able to stay home for a couple of years. I mean, I, I've been touring between 100 and 200 nights a year for several decades now. And then to suddenly have this ability to stay at home and, and not just an ability, a mandate. You must stay home. You, you're not allowed to go out there, you know. And, and for a lot of us, I, it, was, it was interesting watching what my colleagues did. You know, some people got super domestic, started baking bread. Mm. And uh, we, uh, my girlfriend and I, we planted a garden, started growing our own salad vegetables. And I started going fishing. I've never had hobbies in my life, Alan, and I went fishing. I've never, I've never done anything like that. But one of the things that I found with one of the gifts of, of, of all of that time uh, off the road was the ability to, to, to stay at home and write and, and prepare music. And at first, I, it was the Clark Terry Centennial, and I had written a bunch of music for a Clark Terry Centennial for, for three flugelhorns. And I had a bunch of different shows lined up, which and everything got canceled, of course, because of COVID. And then I just started thinking, well, maybe I'll just start working on this next recording. And um, I, I didn't realize that it was thematic, really. I just started to, I would write a piece and then I would write another piece. And, and when I started to have enough material, I realized that it, 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 it was all kind of of a piece. It all, it all, there's a certain kind of, I don't know, outlook or ethos or vibe that, that it all kind of fit together nicely. And so we went into the studio in, in November of last year and, uh, and did the recording. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm just so happy with how it turned out. You know, sometimes you go into the studio and there are gremlins and there are weird little technical things that come up or maybe somebody's having an off day or something. And everybody in the band really just brought their A game. I'm just knocked out by, by how it turned out. 
Well, now, you had said uh, the word thematic. Uh, yeah. Is this really reflective of your environment, your geography in the northwest of the U.S.? That's an open question, man. You know, you know how people talk about, like, the, the, the territory bands back in the day? And, you know, somebody would say, hey, man, if you're ever in Kansas City, you got to go hear Jay McShann. You know, if you really want to hear that Kansas and even now, certain musicians like and Christian McBride talks about this, that there's a Philly sound. There's a Detroit sound. If you listen to a rhythm section from Detroit, there's a certain approach to rhythm. And um, and my good friend, Daryl Grant, who who lives in Oregon, he has an album called The Territory. And, and, and he posits that it's inescapable, that, that the place that you live and the land and the people it can't help but affect your approach to music. So I'm sure it must happen to musicians. You know, I've lived in a lot of different places, and I'd like to think that I take a little bit of the spirit of each place I've lived along with me, and I hope that, I hope that those influences find their way into our music. You know, I, I guess the, the reason why I'm asking that is, in looking at the title of this release, Cascadia, I, I don't think that was necessarily an environmental artistic accident. Hmm. Well, here's what it's like. I wrote a piece called Cascadia. It's kind of a, a, a bit of a tribute to my new adopted home region. ended up becoming the title track to the recording and then in hindsight I'm looking at this and I see evergreen girl Misty Night. songs after the rain
know, they all kind of suggest the, you know, the healing waters and the and the, the the atmosphere and the mist and fog and rain and all of that that we have up here in the Northwest. And there's the Cascadia bioregion. There's there's kind of a philosophy up here. Uh, 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 it's almost a libertarian kind of idea that this entire, you know, there are books about, there are novels about Cascadia, you know, and, 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 and about the idea of, of oh, the state of Jefferson and, and whatnot. You can look online and read about it. It's kind of interesting. There's a whole, you know, and, you know, I'm sure that's an element, but I also have a Wichita lineman on here, mm-hmm. you know, which has nothing at all to do with the Northwest. And it's just one of my father's favorite songs. And I just wanted to include it. think it's more the concept that ties the recording together it's more the mood and the atmosphere in general than than uh, a reflection of this region i think well but there are other things on this like some of your compositions for example and certainly not defined by the pacific northwest you have a, a, a song called perfect peaches and it has a bossa nova (laughs) tinge to it right yeah how'd that that song perfect peaches uh, it's about a girl named Peaches, a friend of mine. Actually, her name is Mary, but Peaches is her nickname. And, um, and it's a song that I wrote for her. describe her to you this way she has all of the wholesome girl next door sweetness of Marianne and all of the charisma of ginger and all of the uh, gravitas of mrs. Howell <laughs> some of the young people won't know what I'm talking about but maybe you do <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, I. But you wouldn't want to be marooned on an island with her. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm actually, she'd be pretty cool to be marooned on an island with. She's she's very resourceful too. She's very cool. Sounds Good like friend. A, sounds like it would be. Uh, <laughs> besides peaches, you also yeah. have a track here, and it, it's a tribute to Anthony Bourdain. It's called oh, yeah. Bourdain. Tell yeah. us about that one. Well, he is a is a personal hero of mine, and. I'm finding the older I get, the more people like Anthony Bourdain mean to me. This guy was was such a such an original, and and was so authentic to to him, himself and 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 his personality.
Um, you know, he had several TV shows which were foodie travel shows, but if you look at them, they're all kind of the same story. It's this guy, he's kind of a former chef and he's traveling around and he's experiencing history and culture and cultural anthropology through food. And he straddles that line between the kind of high foodie culture. Like if you see, if you watch one of his shows, it's called Parts Unknown. And if you watch the, the episode in San Francisco, you know, he goes to some of those shishi foodie places, but he all goes, also goes to the, the funky like Tonga tiki bar and he, gets, he goes to the food court and he gets a burrito in the Mission District and you really get a sense of the flavor of the place. And what it is, is he's a true xenophile. This is a guy who, if you're different from him, he loves that and he wants to know about it. So, you know, he went and shot guns with Sammy Hagar on that guy's ranch, you know, and, you know, so, you know, Bourdain is, is you know, liberal bordering on radical and Sammy Hagar is arch conservative gun toting Yahoo. And, and they were able to get along and spend an afternoon together. To me, that that approach to life and that way of, of thinking that we're all we're all in this together and we're all better off talking and, and learning from each other and 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 getting along and accommodating one another than 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 sort of retreating into our little you know individual silos there are so few real xenophiles in the world and and anthony bourdain was a great exemplar of of just that that worldview and and i really admire him for that in general all of the tracks uh, on this cascadia album are, are really uh, quite magical thank you i'm sure that people that pick up a copy of this or, or hear Cascadia somewhere uh, in their travels, uh, on their devices, uh, they're going to find that it's uh, supremely wonderful music to enjoy. Thank you. So I, I, I appreciate the, the time that we've had to uh, talk about some of that. With respect to yourself now, I, I know you've done so much in the business. Where, where do you go from here? What's, what's on your horizon? You know, man, if you if you had asked me that question 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I would have given you a list of projects that I, you know, I want to start a funk band with nine horns called Atticus Finch. And I want to do, you know, I have all these ideas, you know, of things I'm going to get to one day. And it's funny now I, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. I don't want to do anything different. I just want to do it a little better. I hope that next year I play a little better than I play now. I hope that my next gig is a little more successful than my last gig. I hope that my next recording is a little more personal, a little more authentic, a little more heartfelt. I really want to just continue on the path that we're on and and just try to to just make incremental progress and it, that might not seem like a very ambitious idea but i look at somebody like art farmer and in his last decade he was still practicing six hours a day and still improving and still you know progressing and that's i find one of the the beautiful things about this music is that we don't age out when we're 16. You know, it's not like being a ballerina or a, or a professional athlete or something. You know, look at UB Blake. Man, he, that, that cat was playing until he was 100 years old and sounded great. So I just hope to keep doing what I'm doing and just do it a little better. And here's your Dimitri Matheny quote, okay? We talk a lot about going higher, doing more. I really want to focus on going deeper. Not doing more, but going deeper. 
And that is well said. Very beautiful words. And see, I was right. You are a philosopher, damn it. (laughs) At this point, let's give uh, a little tribute to uh, your bandmates on this recording. And uh, tell us uh, quickly who the musicians are. Well, I've got my my favorite Seattle rhythm section, uh, Bill Anshell on piano, Phil Sparks on bass, and Mark Ivester on the drums. The saxophonist is someone that I've known for 20, 25 years, I guess. We we knew each other when we both lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now I'm living in Washington State, and he lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, but we still get together and tour and perform and record. And um, and Charles McNeil is his name, and he's just a fantastic... It, it, for my money, he's one of the, the world's great saxophonists right now. He's The thing that I love about Charles in particular is that he plays the history of the saxophone. You know, you... You can say to him, hey, man, on this one, we're, we're I'm really looking for that, that Ben Webster subtone. He's like, got it. And he's got it. He knows exactly what, what you need, you know. I love that about him. He's a chameleon, but he's also very much himself. Well, you know, Dimitri, it sounds like you're living the dream. <laughs> I'm happy, man. I'm, I'm, I, I, I do feel fortunate. I do feel fortunate to be able to do what I enjoy. Well, it's like what we said at the beginning of this conversation, that without music, where would we be? Where would we be? Having said that, tell us how our listeners could learn more about you and your music. Well, the trick is being able to spell my name, which is not easy for anybody. (laughs) I'm going to spell it. It's D-M-I-T-R-I. So there's no vowel between the D and the M. D-M-I-T-R-I. And then my last name, Matheny, is spelled M-A-T-H, like math, E-N-Y. It's different spelling from Pat and Mike Matheny. It's M-A-T-H. Anyway, if you go to my website, you can find my, my album. Uh, it's also it's going to be available in all the usual places, you know, Amazon and Apple Music and Spotify and, and all the places you'd normally would go for music, you'll be able to get this album. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I'm all I'm, I'm on the social media platforms too, under my name Dimitri Matheny. And uh, yeah, connect with me. I'd love to stay in touch with everybody who's interested in this music. Well, it's been a distinct pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you, get to know you a little better. And Dimitri, as far as I'm concerned, this was time well spent. Thank you so much, Alan. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. I really do. Thank you for the boost. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with flugelhornist, composer, and educator, Dimitri Matheny. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.